In January of 1933, Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany. As the Nazi party strengthened their power, life became increasingly difficult for the Jews of Germany. Most notably, the 1935 Nuremberg laws would strip them of many of their fundamental human rights. Furthermore, in 1938, Jewish schools, businesses, and synagogues across the country were torched and vandalized in a wave of violence now known as the Kristallnacht. Some historians now consider this event to be the start of the Holocaust. Around 100 Jews were killed and 30,000 men were sent to concentration camps. Following these terrible events, the kinder transport was set up, under which around 10,000 Jewish children aged between 3 and 17 would find refugee in Britain. However, dominant narratives of the kinder transports have led to a number of common misconceptions. It is often assumed that under the scheme, it was easy for children to travel to Britain. Moreover, the kinder transport is often seen as a heroic government scheme, causing the roles of private organisations to be overlooked. Lastly, in this narrative, refugee experiences are painted as universally positive, which can be an oversimplification of reality. In this podcast, we wanted to address these issues and uncover the genuine historical truths of the kinder transport. So we are joined here today by Martin Winstone, the Senior Historical Advisor for the Holocaust Educational Trust. Martin is also the author of the books The Dark Heart of Hitler's Europe, Nazi Rule in Poland Under the General Government, and The Holocaust Sites of Europe, A Historical Guide. So thank you very much for being with us here today, Martin. Um, could you start by just briefly introducing yourself? Sure, thank you. So as you said, I'm the Senior Historical Advisor to the Holocaust Educational Trust. Um, I'm also the um, project historian for the United Kingdom Holocaust Memorial, which is currently being developed in, uh, in, in central London. And I think maybe that's particularly relevant to our discussion today, because the focus of this memorial is going to be uh, Britain's relationship with the Holocaust. And so I've spent a lot of time over the last several years thinking about a lot of the issues involved with um, those British responses, and particularly they tend to end us end up taking us always back to the question of refugees and, and how Britain um, helped or did not help people who were trying to escape from Nazi Germany. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, so the topic, um, today's topic is uh, the kinder transport, and uh, I'm sure that you will be able to help us with some some extra information on the on the matter. Um, could you please start off by telling us just in a few words what the Kinder Transport was? Sure. So the Kinder Transport was an operation from the end of 1938, which continued up till the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, which enabled um, child refugees to come to the UK from uh, Nazi-occupied countries, essentially from, from Germany and Austria. There was a an associated movement, which was slightly different to get kids out of um, Czechoslovakia as well. Um, so these were children up to the age of 17, um, mostly Jewish. And the basically, they were allowed to come to the UK. They didn't need to have a visa, unlike other people who came to the UK from Germany and Austria. And they were allowed in essentially if 
the organisers of the kinder transport could provide a guarantee, a financial guarantee, that these children would not be a, a burden on the state. And this, under this scheme, um, almost 10,000 children came to the UK from Central Europe between uh, December of 1938 with the first transport and September of 1939, when obviously uh, the war broke out. Thank you very much. You you just brought up a very important factor, uh, namely the financial aspect. You, uh, you, you, you were talking about a burden uh, to society in regards to, to the kinder transport. Uh, could you tell us uh, whether um, any privileges for the up for the children of the upper class in order to benefit from uh, from this safety well i suppose actually in that that sense the privilege would be frankly if kids came from wealthy families that they would probably not come on the kinder transport they 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 would be able to come to the uk with their family and i think that's an important thing to pay attention to that there's a tendency maybe for us to pat ourselves on the back and say, weren't we when wonderful? We allowed in these helpless children. But there's a very obvious question there, which is why didn't their parents come with them? And so it's worth people understanding a little bit about the wider British immigration policy in the 30s or its refugee policy, which was shaped by existing immigration laws. Until the start of the 20th century, Britain basically didn't have immigration laws in any meaningful sense. Anybody could come to the UK. In 1905, the Aliens Act was introduced as a direct result of anti-Semitism um, because of the large-scale immigration of Jews from the Russian Empire at the end of the 19th century. This was then tightened up further after the First World War, again as a considerable result of anti-Semitism. And it essentially said there was no automatic right to asylum in the UK. You could only come to the UK if you could prove that you could support yourselves. Um, and that was essentially the framework for refugees in the 1930s. So for most of the 1930s, uh, prospective refugees from Nazi Germany were people who either had some degree of wealth um, or, and, and this was, you know, quite, this was something amongst themselves that the British cabinet very openly talked about. If people were famous, so if they were scientists, philosophers, artists, that sort of thing, that would make the UK look good. So they were they were allowed in. So all the way up until the Kristallnacht pogrom in 1938, a very restricted number of people could come to the UK. But if Jews did have wealth, then they could do so. So kids who were from wealthy families, not always, but often would be able to come with their parents. So in the case of the kinder transport, um, it was essentially up to somebody to raise money for the vast majority of Jewish children in Germany who didn't come from super wealthy families. And that might be the you know friends of the family in the UK, often having contacts already in the UK would be very helpful. But more often it was just through charitable work. It might be a British family who were willing to put up the money for a kid to come, um, or it might be a charitable organization who, who was raising funds for to help these children as a, as a group. But essentially, there were a lot, but after after Kristallnacht, there were a lot of people who wanted to get out of Germany and the Nazis wanted them to go. But it was about finding the people willing to pay for this 
as much as anything else. Because another point that's finally worth mentioning is within Germany itself, although the Nazis were trying to force Jews to leave, they were also trying to make sure they couldn't take any money or property with them. So it was impoverishing Jews at the same time as trying to force them out. And the rest of the world didn't want poor, poor refugees and maybe particularly didn't want poor Jewish refugees for all sorts of reasons. And so having wealth made it easier to emigrate from Germany in terms of the kinder transport. There were more families who wanted their kids to come out than there were places available. Money might play a part in it, but it's all sorts of other complicated factors as well. Um, it's, a, it's essentially rather inevitably the uh, the capacity of all of the incredible organizations involved in this process could not necessarily cope with the number of people who wanted to use their services yeah yes um uh, and and speaking about the the group of people that was indeed able to to get uh on the kinder transport uh, uh historical data shows us that in most instances instances even though there were multiple siblings in a family it was uh it was that only one of the children uh got on the transport and not the entire uh, not the entire family or not not all the children of a of a family why was that and why in most in instances was it that girls um had a better chance on getting taken uh, by the kinder transport i think i think that's an interesting question i think there are two things there one is um if, if you think about the you know families in germany and austria themselves um part of it is parents not necessarily wanting to part with their children um or, or the age of the children being a factor within that as well for different reasons i mean i have to say as a parent myself that of all of the traumatic things that you deal with when you study and educate about the Holocaust, this is the one that really gets me. Because the thought of sending your own child to a strange country to strangers, not knowing what will happen to them, is is a really difficult thing to, to process. It, it feels really uncomfortable even thinking about that idea. So I think sometimes parents themselves were reluctant to to send all of their children and and i think it varied from family to family to some extent it was easier to find prospective foster families who were taking young children which is very much still the case today with the adoption and fostering system lots of people want cute babies they don't want challenging teenagers um but at the same time it's a totally natural instinct as a parent to think if say you've got a teenager they can cope better than a very small child sending a very small child to a foreign country so partly it's at the at the other end as it were within germany and austria choices incredibly difficult choices made by families and then it's also within the uk what was you know it sounds awful but you know what would sell or who would sell who would prospective foster families be most interested in and that tended to be girls that tended to be younger children now that was not the only option and we can maybe talk about that in due course because not every child ended up with a family um but it's you know you find these incredibly tragic letters in the files of the organizations which, which ran the kinder transport of, of desperate parents asking for their child to be taken and ultimately, again, comes down to the fact that you know, the, the time, the financial resources available meant it was difficult. 
that there, there weren't necessarily there wasn't necessarily enough money there weren't enough institutions or resources to be able to take in all of the children um who whose parents were trying to get them out of germany brilliant um i actually wanted to bring in one point you sort of touched on earlier into the discussion so when we think of the kinder transport popularly i think we often think of it as being very much a government scheme um sort of thinking of the british government as mm. heroic however um, when you look into the events and you touched on this earlier you briefly mentioned organizations uh, it becomes clear that quite a lot of private organizations um, the quakers is one and british jewish organizations were uh, were also involved and so, so just how important were these private organizations both in pressuring the government to allow the kinder transport and then secondly in implementing it logistically once it started I mean, they were the kinder transport, essentially, in, in, in a way, because, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, a very common misconception is that the British government, in any sense, was res responsible for the kinder transport. It was only responsible in the sense that it allowed it to happen. It made, which is a, is a big deal. It made this exception to the immigration laws to say that children would not require visas. And that simplified the process. But the actual... Um, administration of this scheme and the financing of it was entirely in the hands of private or voluntary organizations. Um, the, the key organization was what was called the Refugee Children's Movement, which brought together really representatives from a lot of existing institutions involved with refugee welfare, primarily from the Jewish community, as you said, also from the Quakers, certain other groups. And it was these organizations which did a huge number of things. I mean, they dealt with the logistics. On the German or Austrian side, it was organizations of the Jewish community within those countries who um, drew up the lists, who made sure that kids got to the train stations and so on. But once kids got out of Germany, essentially it was these organizations which were responsible for um, everything that happened really, for placing these children, for um, crucially finding the money now, in some cases, as I said earlier, individual families might agree to pay the costs of the child, the guarantees required. In many instances, that was not the case. So money needed to be raised. There were big public appeals, um, the best known of which was called the Lord Baldwin Appeal, fronted by the former prime minister, Stanley Baldwin, um, to raise money to enable these kids to come here just to pay the guarantees and then all of the costs involved in caring for them within the UK. So there's a range of different organisations because I mentioned earlier, you know, the Czech, so-called Czech kinder transport was a slightly different group of people. Um, and this, you know, required masses of organisations at a national level, um, but also at a local level. Um, because when kids were placed in various um, locations across the country, and it was all over the UK, it's not just about London or the southeast, everywhere pretty much in the UK, refugee children ended up. Um, there were local refugee committees, which were usually made up of just active citizens um, and volunteers, and they did an essential job as well in terms of organising um, schooling for kids, um, organizing sort of social work, making sure that the kids were being looked after, whether they were in a family environment or whether they were in a hostel or a boarding school. And so there's this huge network of people across the country, because I think just as there's a misconception that the British government did all of this, the sort of 
parallel misconception is it's down to heroic individuals. And this is a very, very common misconception generally when people talk about the Holocaust period. We like stories of um, individual saviors. You know, there's a reason why Schindler's List is the best known Holocaust movie. Um, and that, again, is very misleading. So when people think about the Kindertransport, they might equally think of Sir Nicholas Winter, a stockbroker who oversaw the um, rescue of more than 600 children from Czechoslovakia. But you'll often see people say he did this single-handedly. Um, from his um, his house in Hampstead, there was a lot of stuff going on in Prague, and that was all carried out by br other British people who were in Prague together with members of the Czech Jewish community. Um, so the idea of there being a single person, it's just impossible for an operation of this scale. So it's actually, I think, a really important takeaway from this period in history that actually it's not the actions of lone individuals that save lives for the most part there are a few examples of that but it's more groups of people working together there's a much greater power in that and so it's this variety of national and local organizations um, and i think one other thing that's really important to stress about this which again has traditionally been overlooked is that most of the people involved in this were women it wasn't the women who would have their names on the letterheads listing all the patrons of these organisations, but it was overwhelmingly women who were running these organisations. So, for example, with the refugee children's movement, um, they basically had three full time members of staff together with an army of volunteers. And they were two prominent figures within the, the, the Jewish community. Um, Elaine Lasky, who came from a very prominent family of Manchester Jews. Her father was Michael Marks, the founder of Marks and Spencer. Um, and then uh, Lola Hahn Warburg, who was from a very prominent German Jewish family who came to the UK herself as a refugee. And they were the two full time organisers for the refugee children's movement. Um, and then the secretary of the movement was a woman called Dorothy Hardesty, who I've only ever seen one photograph of. And when you read most of the books written about this, it's the men, the people whose names who are on the letterheads, or even when they are written about, it's, you know, it's not Mrs. Um, Elaine Lasky. It, you know, the standard in those days was to give the husband's name. So it's Mrs. Norman Lasky. Um, and so the overwhelmingly female role in organizing the kinder transport is something that's been completely overlooked for the most part and again is with what we're doing with the memorial is something that we want to restore to this so that's a very long-winded answer to your question so the answer is the organizations are crucial um the government without the government this could not have happened but if it was only the government it would not have happened that's brilliant thank you so um i guess just to summarize briefly would it therefore be better to understand the kinder transport as a more popular humanitarian endeavour than a government initiative? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was not a government initiative. I should say as well, I mean, you, you mentioned this in your original question. How did it come about? Um, predominantly representatives of the British Jewish community, together with uh, members of the Quakers, had meetings with first with Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister, and then Samuel Hoare, the home secretary, where they proposed this. So it was the government agreeing to a proposal from someone else. And that's basically what the government did. Um, and it could have chosen not to do that. Um, but the actual, the whole movement itself is coming from, from, as it were, the people. There's an issue in the question that you raised, a popular movement in the sense of it was coming from society very much so. There's a whole wider question. 
of what was the attitude of society as a whole to the kinder transport, which is maybe, or to refugees generally, which is maybe um, another question. The, the British government, uh, as you just touched on, on um, has received uh, some criticism in regards to, to this scheme. Uh, it's argued that they could have acted more rapidly, that they could have uh, introduced and changed the laws uh, more quickly in order to uh, help a greater uh, proportion of particularly Jewish children. Mm -hmm. But moving away from Britain, could you tell us uh, if there were any similar schemes in other countries, such as France or uh, particularly Western countries? Um, at one level, no. In one sense, the kinder transport was unique in that it was a scheme deliberately for, for children. In fact, the only parallel really is a year earlier in 1937 in Britain, many of the organisations which were later involved in the kinder transport um, had... Um, brought about the evacuation of children from the Basque region of Spain, where in the Spanish Civil War, there'd been the, you know, famously the bombing of Guernica by the Germans and, and all sorts of atrocities. And so the, the, in a way, this was an inspiration for the kinder transport, the evacuation of children, in this case, from a war zone, but from, from as evacuees from fascist terror. So in other countries, the, there was a proposal made to the US Congress which was um, a bill was proposed, which was uh, similar to the kinder transport, but basically failed to get through Congress. Um, refugees from Nazi Germany found themselves trying to flee to wherever they could in the 1930s. And most of the most German Jews did leave Germany. So most people were able to find somewhere. Um, but pretty much everywhere had restrictive immigration policies. In the summer of 1938, um, as you may know, there was a, a, a conference at Evian in France where representatives of 32 nations met to discuss the refugee issues, specifically the Jewish refugee issue. And they gave lots of lovely speeches where they all said it's terrible what's happening to the Jews in, the Ger in, in Germany and we sympathise, but... Uh, and every country pretty much said we can't really let any more people in. Now, in a way, it, it it's good that after the Kristallnacht pogrom, there were relaxations and more people were allowed in. In Britain, not just children, um, the largest number of Jewish refugees who came to the UK actually was not the kinder transport. It was mostly women who came as domestic servants, about 20,000 people, um, because domestic servants were the one occupational group where there was a labor shortage and so where the ministry of labor was willing to grant work visas um so so there was some opening of the door but i think everywhere there was this general reluctance to admit in large numbers of refugees there are various reasons for that i mean people often point to the fact you know there was there was an economic depression in the 30s there was mass unemployment and so on um Although, frankly, these refugees were, were not necessarily going to be competition for any labourers in Britain or any other country in, in, in the occupations affected. Um, it's fair to say there was anti-Semitism, not necessarily from the politicians themselves, but I think there was a justified feeling amongst politicians in Britain and other countries that a significant proportion of the population was anti-Semitic, because there's quite a lot of evidence that's true. Um, and I think there's... There was also, and I think this is probably a key factor, which particularly affected Britain, 
maybe more than most other countries, because Britain was not just responsible for refugees coming to the UK, but bear in mind that the British Empire controlled a quarter of the globe. Um, and so particularly it controlled Palestine, which the British government had in in the First World War had said was going to become a homeland for the Jewish people. Um, the British government basically took the view that if they relaxed their immigration laws to the extent that they allowed in a lot more refugees, that that would then encourage other countries with anti-Semitic governments in the 1930s, like Romania or Poland. Now, that's quite a contentious issue in the current day to say that Poland's 1930s government was anti-Semitic, but frankly, it was. Um, then the, the, the British feared that if you opened up Palestine or you opened up Britain to more German Jewish refugees than the governments of Poland and Romania, which had way bigger Jewish populations, much, much bigger Jewish populations, would start expelling their Jews as well. Um, so there's this whole load of factors which mean don't mean that the decisions taken by British leaders or other leaders were correct, but that influenced the decisions that they took. So whatever the hostility they may or may not have had to refugees themselves, they were mindful of public opinion and they were mindful of other international pressures at the same time. So as a result, yeah, every country pretty much did not admit as many refugees as perhaps with hindsight, many people would say it could have done. Um, thank, you, thank you very much, Martin. Um, speaking about uh, those uh, lucky enough to, to make it to Britain, could you tell us a little bit about their experience in Britain, uh, where they um, supported and adapting more easily to their new lives without their parents, without their friends, without their siblings? And what was their life like after the war? Did anyone move back? Did they try to uh, get in touch with their families? Uh, unfortunately, uh, for, for some uh, and a great, great majority of them, they were unable to do so. Um, could, you, could you tell us more about that? Sure. Maybe if I take the last question first. So what, what happened after the war? Um, I mean, obviously, um, I, I think pretty much every child, if their parents didn't get out before 1939, lived in the hope that their parents would have survived. Um, and obviously, often at the end of the war, that was a heartbreaking experience. I mean, another misconception about the kinder transport actually is that you, you'll often hear, particularly in sort of older testimonies or older books, people saying something like 90% of the parents of the kinder transport were murdered, which is not, not the case. There was a, a big study of kinder transportees done um, in the in earlier this century by the Association of Jewish Refugees, um, which found that a majority lost their parents, but, but maybe around 60% or so. Um, and and so, um, obviously, I think pretty much every child wanted some sort of contact with with their parents after the war. Um, very very few of them would have gone back to the places they came from because the associations was, were too painful. In some cases, because they were settled in the UK, others did move on to other places, some to the states, for example, uh, or maybe to Israel. Um, but I think even where parents survived. It was a very ambiguous experience um, because if you think about it, if, if, if kids left their parents, particularly at a very young age, you know, if they were only, say, five or six years old, 
and they didn't then see their parents for another six or seven years these people were essentially strangers so we like to think that where the parents survived there would have been happy family reunions and maybe in some cases there were but in many other cases there were not they were often difficult because a the children in some cases had no real memory of their parents or even if they did there was such a barrier of time but also when you think what the parents had been through you know that often left you know a huge mark upon them whether it's figure uh, whether it's physical emotional um and and so you know there, there aren't necessarily happy endings in that sense um for the kids who lost their families obviously that you know in itself was was obviously in most cases a hugely traumatic event um or in some cases there was just the you know there was the uncertainty it took it often took many years before people found out so i think in that sense most of the people who, who came on the kinder transport didn't go back to germany or austria certainly um many of them established lives in the uk afterwards and um had, had a range of, of experiences but to, to, to rewind from that to go back to the first part of your question their experiences during the war i mean inevitably with almost ten thousand young people of different ages from different backgrounds who ended up in different situations they the experiences were very very mixed we want to believe that every child was loved every child was cared for and um as far as was possible had had a positive experience and for some certainly that was true but the variety of human experience and human nature inevitably means that's not going to be the case for all i mean first of all we have to acknowledge that although coming to the uk saved their lives um because children who remained in in nazi occupied europe were particularly vulnerable um the very act of rupture of being taken away from your family environment, from your home, from everything you've known previously to a strange country with a strange language, strange weather, strange food was something they talked about often, is in itself an immense dislocation. And that's bound to have an impact. Um, and then beyond that, there are very mixed experiences. Firstly, there are differences in terms of how were children cared for. So some ended up with foster families um as i said earlier particularly the younger kids maybe girls more likely than boys others particularly generally the older children tended to end up in more sort of institutional environments maybe in a boarding school or maybe in a hostel so in a lot of cities around the uk there were hostels established by jewish organizations for particularly teenage refugees now which of those was the better option varied because in some cases, being in a hostile environment, so that, that's maybe not the best phrase to use when talking about British immigration policy, because it sounds like something else, in a hostile, um, could actually be quite a good thing. Because you were with your peers, you people who had the same experiences as you, who maybe you could, you would be able to talk to about those those common experiences. Whereas being with a family who had no real understanding of what kids had gone through in Germany, might sometimes be more difficult then again on the other hand being in a stable family environment might for some children work out better essentially there's no common story some kids came out of it feeling that you know it was an immensely positive experiences others not i mean in terms of common challenges where children ended up in families i think there, there are some stories particularly with teenagers particularly maybe with teenage girls where the families 
essentially saw them almost as servants um and um they you know that often led to very traumatic situations and there are a number of kids who would run away from families and get placed somewhere else and it might take some time for a stable um uh, home environment to appear there are sadly some cases where children were abused in some form or another by their foster family. Now, obviously, totally understandably, that is something that most people who experienced this probably were not willing to talk about. But there are a very small number of um, people who were on, on the kinder transport who have talked about being abused by the families they were placed with, abused in various ways. I think a more common issue, I'm sure in most family environments, these were people who wanted to care and to love this child. Um, but the, the, the challenge was more often, you know, differences of experience. I mean, a very obvious one is a lot of children were brought up in Christian families. Um, Elaine Lasky, who I mentioned earlier, said that in an ideal world, they would have placed, been able to place children in family environments which were similar to the ones um, that they came from. So if they were religiously observant, they would be placed in a, a Jewish religious family. But as she also said, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be child refugees. Um, so some kids ended up losing their culture, losing their faith if they had it. I mean, in Germany, Jews tended to be quite assimilated, tended to be, to be secular. But even so, they might still be religious in some way and often found themselves in environments where they couldn't sustain that. Um, and so, and, and then there's also the renewed dislocation for, for a lot of kids that happens once the war breaks out. They might be placed with a foster family, they might be in a hostel or a boarding school, but then with the war, they might then get evacuated to somewhere else. So often it was just the movement from one place to another, which becomes, it then makes it more difficult to form a sort of stable um, uh series of bonds with other people so that all sounds quite negative and you know we all know that adolescence childhood can be quite difficult experiences anyway um and dislocation doesn't normally help in that situation so you know overall i think most of the the people who came on the kinder transport are immensely grateful that they they were able to get out that they it, it in most cases it saved their lives but at the same time, it's inevitably going to be a very mixed set of experiences. And I think you know, we, we always have this natural, totally understandable desire to find positive stories from the Holocaust. And it is in many respects a positive story. But there's a danger that it then becomes romanticised. And human experience is complex. The Holocaust certainly is complex. Um, and rarely are there happy endings. And ultimately, these kids survived, but in many cases, they lost their families. And, and that ultimately, I think, is the big part of the story. So, yes, we can celebrate the kinder transport at one level, but we also should be asking questions about it. Were the kids cared for as best as they could in the circumstances? Some people might say yes, but also the question, why didn't we let their parents in? I think that is a very legitimate issue, um, which we as a society have to confront. And... Um, cheerleading saying aren't we wonderful which is what everybody likes to do with history generally doesn't really lead us to anywhere useful and we just have to acknowledge that this is an event which is is deeply problematic there are nuances and the more we accept that the more actually i think we can learn things from it and 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 think about you know what it actually really means brilliant so we've just got one more question 
how well did these children we talk about actually eventually integrate into British, British society and how were they received by the general public perhaps outside of their foster families? How was the scheme viewed by most British people? Yes, absolutely. That, that is the, the key other question to address. As I say, not everybody stayed in the UK, but a large proportion did. And I think most people, to, to some degree or another, did integrate. Uh, and, and obviously what integration means, it, it can mean all sorts of different things in different places at different times. But, you know, became established members of British society. And, you know, you only have to go, say, to the Wikipedia page about the kinder transport and there'll be this list of all of these eminent people, politicians, artists, um, film, uh, the, the film set designers. If you watch any James Bond film from the 1930s, that was they, the sets were designed by a child refugee. Um, so people who established a, a place in British society. Um, so in that sense, like pretty much every generation of immigrants, people would often have struggles but would eventually establish themselves within and be accepted by society. How far society was accepting of them at the time is an interesting question. I think because they were children, there was some degree of sympathy for them for a big section of the public. But it's really important for us to remember all the way through the 1930s, there was hostility to refugees. There was anti-Semitism. The very first question asked in the House of Commons after the Nazis came to power about Jewish refugees was from an MP called Edward Doran, who was the Conservative MP for um, Harry, part of Tottenham, I think, or Harringay, where he said, will the Home Secretary assure the House that no Jewish refugees will be allowed into the UK? No Jewish refugees. And obviously the Home Secretary didn't say that yes to that. Um, but you know, it's important for us to remember there was a degree of hostility from a segment of society there. And that influenced government policy and helps to explain maybe why there were restrictions beforehand. So it, you know, not everybody was happy about Jewish children coming in. You can actually look at Hansard, the Proceedings of Parliament, and see that after the kinder transport was, was announced, that there were questions from some MPs, basically saying, you know, what guarantees are that these kids are not going to stay here? And I think a, a real problem that children had, you know, we've all been children. That's the one thing that we all have in common. We all know that children themselves, particularly adolescents, are not the kindest people to each other. So another factor that these kids had is they might be Jews and they might be stigmatized by some people because of that. But they were also Germans or, or Austrians. So particularly once the war broke out, they were in this double bind that they were on the one hand victims of anti-semitism but also they were often teased particularly by other kids as germans and just to imagine how upsetting and humiliating that would be someone who had had to leave their country because of persecution by the nazis and now being accused of being nazis themselves because they were from germany and they had a german accent so there's that degree of suspicion which manifested once the war broke out and particularly for the kids who were at the upper age limits when they came to the UK and reached adulthood when the war broke out, then in 1940, they might well find themselves being interned as so-called enemy aliens. Because what, one of the less known parts of this story is in 1940, the British government um, interned a large number of German citizens um, and Austrian citizens on essentially accusing them of being 
prospective Nazi double agents because they were German citizens. And to be fair, the government didn't want to do this initially. It was because of the press and the British public who were panicking when there was the invasion scare in 1940, that this indiscriminate policy of internment was, was adopted. And so people were sent to internment camps at various points around the UK and eventually either to the Isle of Man or to Canada or Australia. And there's a whole story there of the journeys that some of these people had. Um, and, you know, ultimately, this was a great shameful incident in British history. And it was actually members of parliament who forced the government to back down on this. And the government, as I say, the government was pushed into this by the press. I'm not going to say which newspapers, but you might be able to guess. Um, and by um, a significant section of public opinion. And this, um, you know, so, so during the war, there is that stigma of potentially being treated as you're a German spy, even though you fled Nazi Germany. And yet a lot of them ended up when they did come of age during the war, eventually serving in the British armed forces or helping the war effort in other ways. And I think with hindsight, a lot of kinder said, well, we understand why people maybe behaved in the way they did at the time because of the, the situation in the war. Um, but even so, it is always important for us to remember that um, just like every generation of refugees who came to the UK, there were people who at the time were hostile to them. And then there was maybe probably a bigger group of people who thought that a big chunk of the British pub public was hostile to them. And so it's, you know, today people tend to celebrate the kinder transport as this wonderful thing. Um, but we always need to remember that at the time, like every other issue dealing with how Britain responded to the refugee crisis created by the Nazis or how it then responded to the Holocaust, there were there were different points of view. And as a very final point, I think it's also just worth saying that once the war was over, um, when you had this population of Holocaust survivors in Europe, again, there were very different opinions about whether or not Britain should allow survivors in. And as, as it turned out, the, the British government agreed again to a proposal from the Jewish community to allow up to a thousand um, child survivors, mainly meaning teenagers, in. But not really much more than that. Other than that, survivors could only come to the UK if they had relatives already living in the UK. Um, so again, even after the Holocaust, even though, and people in Britain knew full well what had happened in the Holocaust, despite maybe later claims to the contrary, there was still a general reluctance to admit people to the, to this country. And so we've always got to remember that it, you know, it's not th these aren't fairy stories or fairy tales. The, the, these are things where different people acted and thought and behaved in different ways. Martin Winstone, thank you for such a comprehensive overview of all the issues addressed. This year's theme for Holocaust Memorial Day was ordinary people. And in this context, I think the crucial role that ordinary people can choose to play or not to play is an extremely important message in today's world. On that, we now pass over to Jay and Melody for the next part of the podcast, where they will be talking about some of the legacies and contemporary relevance of the kinder transport. My name is Jaya Pathak, and I'm a regional ambassador at the Holocaust Educational Trust. Hi, my name is Melody, and I am also a regional ambassador for the Holocaust Educational Trust. You will have heard Bill and Dan discuss the historical context of the kinder transport and the events that led to its conception, as well as the common misconceptions around this. 
will be exploring the legacy of the kinder transport and its contemporary relevance in relation to present-day responses to low-fleeing persecution. The kinder transport was the transport of approximately 10,000 Jewish refugees to Great Britain from Nazi Germany between 1938 and 1939. So it would be very helpful to those with us if we could talk a little bit about arguably the strongest misconception about the kinder transport, that it was a scheme that all British parliamentarians and the British public welcomed without hesitation, with open arms. Was that correct? Definitely not. The British government was ambivalent, if not hostile, to Jewish refugees. Um, and kinder transportees may had very diverse experiences, some experiencing alienation, bullying, abuse and exploitation when they arrived in the UK. Many were also treated as enemy aliens and interned. They were told to speak in haughting English rather than speak German when they arrived in the UK because of strong anti-German sentiments as well. So they may have experienced anti-Semitism and also anti-German sentiments. The kinder did have really diverse experiences. Obviously, there are many positive stories, but there are also negatives. And I think that's a very common misconception that these often aren't picked up on. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that we talk about the scheme in itself kinder transport as we said is an incredible achievement and there are so many positive stories that have come out of it and it really is something we should be very proud of but we also need to be honest about how the scheme works it was based on very restrictive criteria it was only allowed that those under the age of 17 were able to find refuge in the uk and most applications from adults were also unsuccessful for those adults who may have been refugees as well and whilst there are many thoughts about why the UK government may have restricted the scheme visa waiver to children only, it was partially because of the limited numbers that were available, but also because there was this fear from some British parliamentarians and some pockets of society that this would introduce foreign competition for British workers. And actually, in the transcript of the debate that took place in Parliament in the House of Commons about the kinder transport at the time, you can see some of the comments that these MPs had made. So I think that there was this fear of refugees arriving and adult refugees arriving, being of a working age and competing with British workers. And additionally, if you look at press reports from the 1930s, you'll see that there was also a fear of dangerous adults disguising themselves as a, as a child refugee but obviously being a kinder transportee you are portrayed as as young and innocent and there is that innocence because you're a child so that's quite interesting as well looking at the age dynamic and I think you were saying Melody as well earlier that there is a similarity between how adults were perceived back then and the potential of adult refugees and also how adults are spoken about now. I know you mentioned, is it some some media articles which you saw which touched upon adult refugees almost demonising them because of their age? Absolutely. I think that there's often the portrayal of older, especially male refugees who are still children, as a danger or a threat and in a lot of sort of press at the time, the kinder transport, the coverage was mostly around sort of these young girls, young female refugees, 
and sort of, you know, the under 10 so image, perhaps you may see in Liverpool Street Station of the child with the, the suitcase and the teddy bear. And I think this in sort of present day news articles, we see this also this kind of, I guess, almost treating these children as older teens, as adults, um, when in fact they are not, and suggesting they are a threat or predatory or dangerous, which is obviously a very dangerous rhetoric to fall into. Yeah, and it's really interesting as well that you mentioned that the portrayal of sort of women and, and young women and children almost created this image that these are refugees that are good refugees. And I think this good versus bad parallel is is something we can draw back to what's happening in our present day with how various governments, including our own, speak about refugees. And it's sort of this alienation of those who are worthy of refuge and those who aren't. And I think, you know, it's it would be an insult to history for us not to reflect on that when we talk about the kinder transport. And also, you know, the fact that these the, these kinder who, who came here owe so much to this scheme, and they're also dealing with so much trauma as well, that separation from their family who couldn't come with them and, and not knowing sort of what happened to them. And I think that's really important for us to reflect on too, because there is a misconception that a lot of kinder that arrived here may have settled in straight away with incredible families or or settled in and made a home but a lot of them also weren't able to as you mentioned before they all had really unique diverse experiences and if they were then going to be separated from their families and not have that opportunity to join with them again then that would also be incredibly traumatic so we have to remember that and challenge that misconception I think it's also really important that we talk a little bit about the words that we use and I know you mentioned the, some some examples of the rhetoric there is a lot of bad rhetoric used around those seeking refuge and those seeking sanctuary in our everyday and in terms of the parallel of the use of language the home secretary has used language such as invasion when talking about small boats and those who are arriving on our shores seeking refuge in incredibly desperate circumstances and holocaust survivor Joan Salter raised this with her and expressed her concern and said as a holocaust survivor i know where words can lead and this type of language is incredibly dehumanizing and it was really interesting to see the home secretary's response do you feel as though there is that parallel and that rhetoric hasn't changed despite the fact that our mps proudly talk about the kinder transport and other opportunities where they've offered refuge i believe that Bradman's uh precise words were about stopping the invasion on our southern coast. And um, Joan Salter said that this language has parallels, as you've just said, to the language used by the Nazis de to dehumanise Jewish people. Something that Joan Salter picks up on in an article she writes for The Guardian is that it was this sort of language that was used by ordinary people to justify discrimination. Um, and in believing that people, Jewish people, were inferior, they could justify their actions. It was ordinary people who also were kind of believing that their action, believing that other ordinary people were less than human. It's broader rhetoric. It has deeply individual and deeply personal impacts. It affects people on a very intimate scale. Absolutely. And I think that 
what I've been trying to challenge in terms of misconceptions, because I know that's what we're focusing on for our project, is this misconception that the events of the past are confined to the past. And actually, they are carried over into our present day and into our future. What are the lessons of the Holocaust? And I visited the Seeing Auschwitz ex exhibition in London. The last words on the exhibition as you leave are, if we remain blind to unfolding atrocities, if the international community does not become more effective in preventing genocide, can we really say that we have seen Auschwitz at all? And I think we can take that a step forward and say, if the world is not doing more to support those who are fleeing persecution and those who are seeking refuge, can we really say we've learned the lessons of the Holocaust? Can we really say that we have seen Auschwitz, we've seen the impact of the kinder transport? I don't think we can, because the reality is, is that Britain's response to other crises has fallen short of what we sh should be doing. And I think it's very easy for the kinder transport in itself to be used as a way to say, well, actually, we we are, you know, holier than thou in our country and the government has done amazing things. The reality is that the kinder transport is definitely and it should be, as I mentioned earlier, a an example of our shining humanitarian effort. But it's really important to acknowledge the things that didn't go well and the bad elements so that we can learn from it and we can say what we're going to prevent from happening in the future. So in terms of attitudes to refugees today, I think we should probably touch upon what Britain's responses have been to other crises. I mean, we can look at the small boats, for example, and pe people fleeing persecution but also looking at the the influx in in those seeking seeking refuge because of rising persecution that's occurring across the world looking at refugees from all over from places like Syria where civil war has completely displaced you know thousands upon thousands all the way to people like the Uyghur Muslims who are subject to genocide in China and we are trying really hard to to talk about that and, and current issues and trying to encourage the government to offer sanctuary to more people who are seeking sanctuary. Do you think Britain are doing enough at the moment to respond to the refugee crisis? And if you don't think they're doing enough, what do you think they can learn from the kinder transport and our experience with the kinder transport in order to do better? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jaya. Um, I think that we can definitely learn a lot from the kinder transport. We've seen how language can be used to this dangerous rhetoric and language has a real power and can be used to criminalise people and justify sort of harsher policy responses. So describing um, refugees as um, swarms, as I think uh, David Cameron did in 2015, or um, Rubman's use of the word invasion, um, those almost, they are dehumanising. It These are people, people fleeing persecution, ordinary people. And by using dehumanising language, that's forgotten. And then in, res and in response, the policy gets harsher and crueler and in the eyes of the government, more justifiable. Um, and something which is often cited in policy is, well, in the past, we look, we had the kinder transport. Um, 
you know, it epitomised British values. I think actually in a 2015 Holocaust Commission report, um, it says that Nicholas Winton, who if um, people who are listening don't know, was a man who helped save 669 um, kinder transportees, bringing them to the UK. Um, it described, the, the report describes him as epitomising and upholding British values. Now, if we look at that a bit closer, we can see that actually Winton was actively working against British policy at the time. But he's a figure which has almost become um, lionised, and obviously what he did was incredible, but he's become lionised and almost like, I guess, this very ahistorical image of sainthood around him, um, which kind of, I guess ignores the vast networks of people involved, ignores the actual prevailing attitudes of the time by the British government um, and how individuals like Winton are actually working against um, the, the prevailing attitude, the prevailing political climate at the time. Absolutely, and I think it's that untouchable sainthood surrounding what Nicholas Winton did because what he did was remarkable unbelievable you know he is so inspiring and is really truly a hero but it's that that sort of idea that it was it was just all good and it it whitewashes the the many bad things he had to overcome the many difficult things he had to overcome you know convincing people that this was a viable scheme that we should be doing more that we can't just sit and watch while Jewish people are being persecuted en masse in Germany and across Europe. We, we have to do more. He had a lot to, to overcome and we can't miss that part out of our conversation. And that's another misconception about the Holocaust that Britain saw what was happening to Jewish people in Europe and Nicholas Winton said, right, we need to do something about it. And the government said, absolutely, let's do something. This is fantastic. And they did something. Nicholas Winton had to overcome a lot and those who supported him had to overcome a lot in order for the scheme to to come to fruition. And and with that, it, it still wasn't easy. Like you mentioned, the adjustment that Jewish people had to make, the adjustment that Kinder had to make, the hard reality that for many of them, they'll never be reunited with their families. And we can't take away from that by saying it was only good. And that's another misconception as well. So... It's really interesting that you brought brought that up and I'm I'm glad that you did because I think we also should reflect a little bit about how we can create a better environment for those seeking refuge. The main misconception about the kinder transporters for me that I hear a lot of people talk about is that, again, we did everything right in Britain and everybody wholeheartedly supported the kinder transport without any reservation. But we know that's not true. And we know that it was very difficult for those who supported the kinder transport to get it working. And that there were many who were worried. They were worried about the other. And it was this dehumanizing rhetoric about the other and instilling fear about the other that led to a delayed response. Holocaust, what was happening to British Jews wasn't hidden. People had known that anti-Semitism was on the rise, especially here in, in Britain. I think that's a perfect example, again, of how we can tackle that misconception, which is equipping people with the facts and saying, well, actually, 
XYZ happened and it was very good. But the reality is that this was what had to be overcome. So if so for me, the biggest misconception about the kinder transport is definitely the fact that it was seen as all positive, all easy, smooth sailing, no resistance, but there absolutely was resistance to it. What do you think the biggest misconception about the kinder transport is? I would definitely agree with you on that point, um, Jaya, about one of the biggest misconceptions being this overwhelming and unrivaled support for the kinder transport as a scheme. It was not a British government scheme. It was funded, as Bill and Dan mentioned, in the jury and Quakers, um, private organisations, um, and obviously the foster families who took um, the kinder in, often ordinary people. And obviously the people who were involved in the scheme, not just Winton, but these huge networks of actors, of people across Nazi-occupied Europe and in the UK, just ordinary people were at the heart of the scheme. And I think the big misconception is that it's this entirely kind of very highly supported government scheme. And I think this narrative really does seep into the present day. Like, if you look at sort of memorialization and things like that, we often see it as a kind of something that was parliament scheme, something that was the British government taking a stand and they allowed it, but they definitely didn't instigate it. And it, they were quite reluctant. And obviously, as we've discussed, there were elements such as, um, children being you know unaccompanied their parents not being able to come with them which were very sort of difficult and trauma traumatic elements to it as well so yeah i would agree with you and on that being a major misconception that it was just a very supported and wholly british government scheme absolutely and i think Another misconception that is also, I don't know if it's as much a misconception as it is just almost people not giving attention, as much attention to it, is, you know, just how morally acceptable is it for us to allow children to seek refuge and separate them and away from their families? That separation aspect, I mean, that's essentially what it was. Children were allowed to enter here their families were not, their parents were not, and the chances of their parents gaining refuge here was very, very slim. So it's also understanding that as a result of that, there was a lot of trauma and there was a lot of pain and anguish experienced by kinder. And actually going forward from that, it makes you realise that we have to strip away from almost talking about the kinder transport like it's mysterious it was a life-saving scheme and it was definitely a scheme which we should be very proud of here in our country we have to accept the flaws in how it came about in order to crucially do better next time and also do better to the victims of the holocaust you know we owe them that honesty and acknowledging how much smoother that process could have been and as you mentioned a lot of newspapers were very resistant to Jewish people entering this country and to the kind transport 
And actually quite a lot of newspapers, for example, the Daily Express was reported to have anti-Semitic headlines and anti-Jewish headlines. And I think that's really important to remember. You know, this is this is us talking about Jewish people who are facing the destruction of their existence, you know, only a few a few borders away from us. They want to to seek refuge and we are trying to invite them here and they come here and they're facing that anti-Semitism and they're facing racism and discrimination. So again, it's about stripping away from all of that. And I think definitely challenging that misconception. So when people talk about the kinder transport, they talk about it in in a very nuanced way, looking at all of the positives from it, of which there are many, of which I think they definitely in a way, you know, they definitely outweigh the negative elements. I mean, it, again, it was life-saving. It was a remarkable scheme. We should be very proud of it. But acknowledging that there were flaws with it, there were flaws in the process, and it was not easy. And there was lots of resistance. And many people in this country, including in our government, did not want to allow Jewish people to seek refuge here like that. And I think that's something that we need to constantly challenge.